Thank you, Kirsten. That was great announcements. You're the master of the announcement. Absolutely. Well, um, we're in the book of Acts, so I'll tell you a few little Acts stories from last weekend in Guadalajara, which was wonderful. We've been going down there, Shelley and I have been going down there for 20 years and uh, <clears throat> paying dividends, work with a number of churches in that city. It's a big, very sophisticated city. It's not what you think of when you think of Mexico. It's the fashion capital of Central and South America. It's more like Milan than it is like uh, anything else. All the people look like supermodels. I, I, I wonder why I'm there when I'm there. I think I'm a little entertainment device. They wind up and laugh at the loco gringo. Anyway, so we went down there, and um, it was a men's retreat for four different churches. The first one they had ever done like that. It was hosted by a large church and then four, uh, three, three medium-sized churches. The guy who organized it I've known for 20 years. He's a very close friend. And as we're driving to the men's retreat, he turns to me in the car and says, this is going to be good, isn't it? with a question mark and I said what do you mean and he said it has to be perfect I thought he was joking I thought he was joking around with me and I said what do you mean he said well you know imagine you have a dinner party and you invite all these people over to your house you want it to be perfect right I said yes he said you have to be perfect no pressure (laughs) and the problem is that the material that I was teaching from It was all about how we see the Heavenly Father through the eyes of our earthly fatherly experience and how that forms our understanding of God. And the whole beginning of the first session was essentially psychology. And I'm thinking, I don't know if these guys are going to buy psychology. They probably expect just a whole bunch of Bible verses and some lessons, and I'm coming from a different perspective. So when Marco said, you know, you have to be perfect, I basically panicked. I broke out in a sweat and I thought, I was already doubting my material. Now I'm really doubting everything. And I thought, well, I need to change it. And I thought, no, I can't change it. I don't have time. And this is the material that I came to do. So we're just going to wing it and see what happens. So the first session went very well. Um, And everyone, I relaxed. And I could see Marcos, he relaxed and, and he was pleased. But it wasn't what you call a breakthrough thing. It was just good. Then the next day, Saturday morning, the first session, we really got into it. This whole seeing God through the lens of our earthly fathers. And God prompted me somehow to tell a story of my relationship with my father, which was really, really bad. So I told this story and guys all over the room just started crying. These Mexican tough guys, they're all crying. And the senior pastors are running around with Kleenex boxes trying to get to all these guys. I mean, it was it was like the Spirit of God just landed and visited us in a really powerful way that nobody expected. And um, afterwards, Marco was just thrilled. I mean, he was beside himself with, with how good it was. And on Sunday morning... You know, he got up and my interpreter was sitting beside me so I could could understand 
what Marco was saying. He was talking about the men's retreat and how he'd never seen so many Mexican men crying. They never had an experience like that in his life. It was, it was really, really powerful. But the best part was, and this is a little book of Acts, we're sitting around in the, the green room where you sit before you go up to the stage. And we're, I'm joking around and just having fun with the elders and, and laughing and relaxed. And then the senior pastor says, okay, now you have to prophesy over all of the staff and the elders. And I thought, okay, we're going to switch gears from <laughs> fooling around to deeply serious. So I paused and I said, Lord, what do you want me to tell these guys from you? And immediately this thought came in my mind. I want you to tell each of them what I like best about them. I thought, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be really easy and positive. So I start prophesying over each guy and it's going really well. And then I get to this guy I've never seen before. I think I've seen him, but I don't know his name. I don't know what his position is on staff. I don't know anything about him. And I go to prophesy over him and I, I put my hand on his shoulder. I never had this experience before in my life. All of a sudden, this thing from him hits me and it's compassion. I've, it was like, it was, it was a supernatural thing. This incredible power of compassion was coming from him and it was hitting me and I've never felt anything like it. I was overcome. I just started crying. I couldn't speak. I just kept going, oh God, oh God, oh Jesus, what is this? What is this? And I, I couldn't get any words out and then I struggled to get control. And I, and I said, you have this amazing gift of compassion for the poor and the broken. You're going to do a work outside of this church. And the left side of my brain is going, don't tell him he's going to do a work outside of this church. You're messing everything up. And the right side, hearing God, is saying, you're going to do a work outside of this church, and it's going to be a work of compassion to the poor and the broken. You're going to give out food. You're going to give out clothes. And then it comes to me, you're going to plant a church. And I'm thinking, oh, God, now I've really messed this whole situation up. You're going to plant a church, but it's not, it's not in this church. It's, it's somewhere else. And I'm going on about all these things he's going to do. And, and I look up and the senior pastors are staring at each other going like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So off we go to the first service. And after the announcements, the senior pastor calls this guy and his wife up. This is the Sunday they're sending him out to plant a church five hours away. And that's the ministry that they're going to do. And then we go to lunch with the elders and one of the elders says, you need to see this. And he pulls out his smartphone and he goes to photos and he shows me about 10 photos of this guy and his team handing out food and handing out clothes to poor people. Is that like the coolest thing? I mean, it was just amazing. It's so cool. So anyway, now Shelly and I walk on water. At least there's some place where we walk on water for a while, you know, till you screw up the next thing you do. But until you make the next blunder and, and miss it. But we had the most extraordinary time with these guys. Oh, this is so cool. One more story at the men's retreat. I've been praying for someone to interpret my book, Is God Religious? If Not, Why Are We? into Spanish because I believe that it's a book for Mexico more than it is for the U.S. But nobody's interested. 
So I go get my lunch at the buffet table, and all my friends are all eating, and the, the tables are full, so i got to go find a place. So I find this place with three guys, and I sit down beside this guy, and I don't know him from Adam. And uh, we start talking about something of God, and he said, well, it's like you said in your book. And I said, what? He said, well, it's like what you said in your book. And I said, what book? <laughs> I, space. I said, what book? He goes, the book you wrote. Is God religious? If not, why are we? He spoke perfect English. And I said, how did you get my book? And he said, well, I got a copy from so-and-so. I said, uh, how far are you into it? He said, four chapters. He said, but it's kind of slow. And I thought, why? It's not that hard to read. And he, I said, why? And he said, well, I'm just finishing interpreting the first chapter. And I said, why are you doing that? And he said, because it's an important book. <laughs> and I said, so you're going to interpret the, you're going to translate the, you can translate the whole thing. He said, yes. I said, look, let's do this together. We'll work on this together and you can have all the money if it sells anything. But I just want it out in Mexico. And he goes, oh, we're not going to. We're not going to do that. He said, we're going to finish it and publish it, and then we're going to give the money to a charity that we choose to to give it to. Yes! It's so, I mean, God just does these ridiculous coincidental things. And after enough of them happen, you say, well, they're not coincidences anymore. Or we have a God of amazing coincidences. So anyway, it was really a wonderful, wonderful time. Thank you to John and Hope and the elders that we get the freedom to go and do these sorts of things. It's making a difference. Okay, the book of Acts. Two Sundays ago, I spoke about chapter 19, where Paul comes to Ephesus, and I'll give you a very quick um, summary. To summarize, Paul returned to Ephesus, and he discovered a group of disciples who were ignorant of salvation by faith, by grace alone, they were still under the law. They were, they were sort of following, but they didn't really understand the wonder of their faith. That we are justified in God's eyes and accepted by him, not because we're good, but because Jesus is good. And his goodness is attributed to us as righteousness. So, so what a wonderful thing to be following God religiously. And I mean that in the proper sense, the, the uh, actual, they're religious about it. They're trying to earn their salvation. And along comes someone to tell them, hey, guys, I've got really good news for you. You don't have to earn your salvation. It's a gift. What a relief for people living under law. And then he goes on to say, did you guys, uh, by the way, uh, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And they go, what Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? He goes, you don't know. Anything about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What did you guys get baptized into? Well, we got the baptism of John. Paul says, well, that's for repentance. That's the first step. You can't come into the kingdom without repentance. But you know, there's a whole lot more than that. There is. Yes, he's called the Holy Spirit and he'll change your life. He'll live inside of you. He's going to rock your world. Oh, really? What's it look like? And Paul lays hands on them and bam, the very same stuff that happened on the day of Pentecost happens to these guys. This is 18 years after the Pentecost event. The Holy Spirit hasn't really penetrated the culture that much, has he? And the grace theology hasn't penetrated very far either. And Paul makes sure everyone hears those two things. Because the heart of our gospel, the heart of our faith, is not the religious rules and rituals we create. 
live under. It's that you don't have to earn your salvation. It's a free gift. And number two, you're indwelt by a power of goodness that is greater than your weakness. And it will allow you and empower you to live a godly life. It isn't about you anymore. It's about him. So when anything good happens, it isn't about you. It's about him. You can just be thankful that you were used by him. But it's not your glory. It's not your power. It's him. So Paul makes sure that they know that. So he's there for three months. He's been teaching in the synagogue. We're picking this up in verse 8. He's been teaching in the synagogue for three months until some of the Jewish leaders start attacking him publicly. Listen, if you stand for a doctrine of grace and you live it, you will be persecuted for it. Someone will say you've gone too far. You're excessive. If you believe in the indwelling Holy Spirit, you're going to get persecuted because people will say it's emotionalism and it's excess. And you're just getting carried away, blah, 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 blah. It comes with the turf. So Paul gets publicly attacked. He leaves the synagogue. He wipes the dust off his feet and says, fine then. He leaves the synagogue and he goes and uses the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which is a Greek meeting place, kind of like us meeting in this school. It is very much like that. He rents it, basically, the time that they're there. And he's there for two years. He holds these meetings for two years until the whole area has heard the good news of grace and power. And then he's free to leave. He's accomplished his purpose by downloading into these people the two things they need most. And here is a summary of those two years. It's a bit long. We'll read it together. It's going to come up on the screen. We pick this up in verse, 19, in verse 11 of chapter 19. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. You see there's a, an association here between sickness and um, evil spirits. Not in every case, but there's an association being made here. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. Now, you need to understand something about the New Testament. When the word Jews, some Jews went around doing this, or the Jews did that, it is not a derogatory statement about the Jewish people. It is a short way of saying the Jewish leaders in charge of the religion. Okay? So when the Bible says the Jews did this, you're talking about the elite leadership that has control of the Jewish faith and runs the business of religion, essentially. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, they had exorcism. They had practices of exorcism. Casting out demons didn't start with Jesus. There was already religious rituals that were in place to see to it that these things could be taken care of. So some religious leaders went around driving out evil spirits. They tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They're not Christians. They're going to use the name of Jesus, the formula to accomplish their ends. So they would say in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches not in the name of Jesus, the Jesus that I follow who saved me from my sins and given me his Holy Spirit. No, they're, they're so far removed. You know, what is that? Six degrees of separation. 
They're like fifth degree separate. They don't, they don't know who they're talking about. But they've seen, they've seen Paul do it. They've heard about it. So now they're going to try it. So in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, the elite, they were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is the chief priest's sons, the heir apparent. When this became known to the Jews, Jewish leaders, and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. Now, that word fear doesn't mean fear of punishment. They were seized with an incredible, overwhelming awe. They were in awe about what was happening. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Spirit of repentance hit this place. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In today's terms, that is 50,000 days wages. A drachma is a day's wage. 50,000 days wages. That is approximately 137 years of labor. I figured it out if we took the average salary in San Diego, the value of the scrolls burnt would be about $12.5 million worth of ritual, sacred, religious books. Hello? This is no small repentance. This is a whole town of superstitious people throwing away their occult religion. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Yeah, I guess so. Look, before we go into these events more closely, we need to know some of the religious cultural background, particularly concerning the miracles of healing and the casting out of demons. Because we want to put this in context of what was really going on here. See, both praying for healing, physical healing, and casting out demons was not new to the religious culture. There were exorcists. In the Jewish tradition, there were exorcists operating in the pagan Roman religions. There was lots of people trying to take care of evil spirits because this was a culture that believed there are evil spirits and they saw them routinely. So none of this was new to them. We're going to see what is new to them in a moment. But what Jesus was doing and his followers was doing was very different in how the healing and deliverance was done. And I want to contrast these two so you can really get an idea of how religion works and how genuine spiritual authority works. So here's a Jewish healing prayer for the healing of night blindness, which was used during the time of Jesus and the early church. A cord is made of the hair of some animal, one end of which is tied to the foot of the patient. The other to the foot of a dog. Children are to strike together pieces of crockery behind the dog while the patient repeats these words, the dog is old and the cock is foolish. 
Next, seven pieces of meat are to be taken from seven different houses and hung up on the doorposts. And the dog must afterwards eat the meat on a dung hill in an open place. Lastly, the cord is to be untied when one is to repeat, let the blindness of X, son of Y, leave X, the son of Y, and pierce the eyeballs of the dog. This is a very advanced religious culture. And Jewish exorcism, the casting out of demons, was just as convoluted and just as crazy and just as weird and ritualistic and magic-ish as their healing rituals. This is how they did things. Although magic was strictly forbidden in the Jewish law, it became a part of their faith in the areas of healing and exorcism. Now listen, this is consistent with life under law, where form and ritual replace a simple relationship of faith in a God who is a good father. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you see God legalistically, and it's all about what you have to do, it soon becomes regulations and rituals, which you rely on to obtain blessings from God rather than a child-father relationship with a good father based on trust and intimacy and love. They were being freed by Paul into a real intimate relationship with God. They were being freed from this kind of religious superstition. The seven sons of Sceva are doing what they always do. They're using rituals and magic to try to do God's work. This time, they're just trying a new technique. Oh, this looks good. Those guys got great results. Let's just mimic them. Let's just stand the way they stand. Let's just talk the way they talk. Let's use their pastor's voice. Let's just get real religious here. Let's just do it the way they do it. We'll use this name of Jesus like a magic spell. Do you know any Christians that use the name of Jesus like a magic spell? In the name of Jesus, hair grow. I've been trying that for years. It just doesn't work. This, this name of Jesus like a magic spell? Well, sadly for them, they try it. And the demons they go after, they actually know more about God than they do. The demons that they're trying to kick out actually know more about how things work than they do. Oh, yes, Jesus, we know. And fear. And Paul, we've heard all about. But who the heck are you with your, little, your, your strange little incantations and your magic? Okay, now contrast this magic with Jesus' exorcism. Are you ready? The hair of the dog and the swinging a dead cat in the cemetery in midnight while mumbling something. You know, contrast that with Jesus. Are you ready? Here's Jesus doing an exorcism. Be quiet, come out of him. Now, this is godly authority based upon the person of Jesus coming up against dead religion and legalism. Magic is the last resort of the practitioners of dead religion who seek power. Let me say that again. Magic is the last resort of the practitioners of dead religion who seek power. Because under religion, ritual replaces a relationship. We ought to be challenged by this. 
Has our relationship with God become ritualistic in any way? Do we find ourselves simply walking through the motions of things and mumbling the same old pat phrases that everybody else mumbles? Or is our faith a living relationship with all the dynamics of a living relationship? And don't think we don't. I catch myself falling into this often. I see myself saying the same pat things just because it's expected. It wasn't coming from my heart. I just say it because it's what I've always said, and it's what we do around here, and that's our commonly shared religious culture. Are you hearing me? We fall into it by accident, but also it appeals to us because it is a shorthand route to religiosity rather than the difficulties of actually navigating a real relationship with a real God who's a person, has a personality and emotions, and he responds very much like my wife. He responds a lot like my wife. It's so much easier just to be religious. It's quicker and it's, you know, sort of gets the job done and, I can feel good about myself afterwards. I don't have to risk a, a God that gets frustrated or angry or can be hurt by me. Be quiet, come out of him. See, Paul is a lot like Jesus. He's operating as a genuine Christian, one who has a relationship with God rather than a religion about God. The Jews had a religion about God. Paul had a relationship with God. It changes everything. And the demons respect Paul's godly authority, and so do the people, because Paul is in a relationship with God, and God is delegating his authority to Paul, so Paul can speak in his name to evil spirits, and they will do what they are told, because the guy standing behind Paul is his father. You know, the little kids fighting on the, the playground and the bullies beating up on the little kid. And all of a sudden the bully gets scared and stands back and the little kid looks over his shoulder and his father's standing there. Not pleased with what's happening to his son. And the bully runs away. That's how it is when you're in a relationship with your father. So, Paul goes on to explain to the people that man-made gods, idols, are really no gods at all. And the people begin to renounce their little silver idols, their little religious things in in this uh, city that is the capital city of the Temple of Artemis, the, the place where this great Greek god is is honored and trinkets are sold. And tourists come, just like in Lourdes, just like in Guadalupe, just like in these religious locales. Yeah, man, I mean, you go, you go to the Vatican, right? Inside Vatican City, there's no merchants. They won't allow it. But as soon as you step outside onto the street, there are long tables of Pope t-shirts, you know, and your favorite saint t-shirts. And little things you can wear around your neck and little, little popes for your dashboard. There's a whole business in religion. 
And that's, what's, that's what was happening here. These guys made these little silver idols and people would come to worship at Artemis' temple and then they'd have to buy some trinkets and it was a great business. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient Near East. People traveled great distances just to see it and tell their friends they worshiped there. Just like today. The production of silver shrines and idols was a major moneymaker for this major city. So Paul comes along and starts poking holes in their money-making balloon. Artemis is a false god. You don't need to buy these trinkets. They have no worth. They have no value. I'm wired up to the the creator of, of everything. He's my father. He can be your father too. You don't have to be enslaved to this religion. You're free. And the people get so convicted being as they've seen what he's done and the miracles and the handkerchiefs taken from his presence to a sick house and the person's instantly healed. They've seen all this power. So what do they do? They start throwing away $12.5 million worth of Artemis books. And they throw away their little silver icons. And the merchants who make this stuff go crazy. This guy, Paul is teaching our people that Artemis isn't a real god. He's ruining our business. We need to kill him. We need to get rid of him. And a riot breaks out, and the people are going crazy. And the city administrator, head guy, has to step in and try to bring this thing under control. And Paul's friends are... Paul's such a hothead. Paul's a hothead. Paul is like... Terminally passionate about God, even at times when he shouldn't be. He's a hothead. And he says, I'm going out to talk to them. I'm going out to address the crowd. And his friends go, no, you're not. You go out to address them, they will kill you. And you can just see them holding him back. You know, the little scrappy guy getting ready to fight. And they hold him back and they say, no way. And and he listens to them and uh, he leaves the next day. And he's gone. Things come to a head. He wants to appear before the crowd. Cooler heads prevail. Paul decides to simply leave the city, but not until after a healthy, powerful, God-centered, grace-filled church is planted. Two years, and now he can move on to the next thing. Okay, that's the story. That's the chapter. What does this have to say to us today? Number one. The means that Paul is using to bring people into a relationship with God is through a demonstration of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. This is normal Christianity for Paul, and it should be for us as well. And we live in a day and age, at least in most church circles, where the supernatural nature of God is is shunned and theologies have been created to dismiss it rule that out we've turned the holy spirit into a bird basically just sits around somewhere waiting for a chance to do something which he never gets most of the time that was normal christianity then it's still normal it may not be average what we're experiencing but it's normal don't ever confuse average and normal what we have often is average but it's not normal this 
is normal Christianity. We should expect more of God's power in our lives. We should be expecting to do things that can only be explained as, wow, that must be God. They're not always spectacular. The simplest act of loves can be supernaturally inspired by God, and they have power because they're full of his spirit. But we should be expecting these things in our lives. Number two, and this is critical, our use of spiritual power comes from a relationship of intimacy with the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It is dependent upon our relationship with him. When you find yourself relying on rituals and rules and regulations, that's moving away from a relationship. It's operating under religion. What flows through us has nothing to do with technique or ritual. It's not conforming to some style or form. It is simply acting from a place of intimacy with our Father who is our God. With our God who is our Father. With our Father who is our God. With our God who is our Father. It's our identity as his children which gives us the authority and the place to do these sorts of things. And the stronger that relationship is in you, the more you know his love as father, the more of his nature will flow through you. So that's something we should be constantly protecting. Number three, demons fear us not because we are powerful, but because we are in cahoots with the creator of all power. We are feared because he is our father. This is something you need to understand You were created with a certain measure of spiritual power. Satan was created with thousands of times more spiritual power in him than you were created with. So if the fight we have is power versus power, he wins every single time. And so we fear him because we sense he's very powerful and we know I'm just a little nothing. I'm not very powerful. Fortunately, the issue is not power versus power. It's power versus authority. And father stands behind the child, full of power. He's the source of all power. And he says to child, use my authority. I'm letting you speak in my name. Go out and do stuff. I'm behind you. And when Satan sees a child of God that knows he's God's child and he has God's authority, Satan runs away. Because he knows his power is no match for God's authority. Because God's ultimate power backs up God's authority. You don't have to feel strong. You don't have to feel powerful. In fact, you feeling powerful is an illusion. You are not powerful. You are weak and small. But your father is massive and powerful and full of authority. And he lets you speak in his name so you can do stuff so his power can flow through you and amazing things can be accomplished. Not because you're great. You're not. Not because you're powerful. You're not. For one reason, you know your identity. You know who you are. And more importantly, you know who your father is. And you live out of that father-child relationship which no one can take from you. No circumstance can take it from you. You are operating out of a new identity when you are operating as God's child, his daughter, his son. You keep that in mind and there's no reason to fear anything. Because my father's great. My father backs up 
what I say for him. You do that, all of a sudden you find your prayers are becoming very authoritative, very strong. You find yourself praying more strongly than you ever have before, and you wonder, why am I doing this? I don't usually pray like this. It's because you've tapped into who you really are, and you've tapped into who he really is. And now the Spirit is joining you in that prayer, and there is power flowing through your prayer. And you can begin proclaiming things. You can prophesy over strangers and tell them what God's going to do in their lives and find out he's about to do that next week. I mean, it's just so much fun. You really do feel like a little Superman. It's kind of ugly what it does to your pride, but you do really feel like tearing your shirt open with an S on it. Like, look what I did. Really, all I did was stumble into who he is. I didn't do anything. I just stumbled into who he is. We had a good time together. Your identity has been changed. You are his child. You have his authority. He has given you a spiritual credit card with his bank account number and your name. Now, you use it in accordance with his instructions. It's not just go and do whatever you want. Hair grow. BMW appear. It's not that. You're doing it for his purposes out of the relationship that you have with him. Number four, the faith to act powerfully does not come from working up our ability to believe. It comes from knowing him in whom we believe. We don't work it up. We just focus on who he is. The more certain we are of our belonging to him, the more authority we carry. Authority is related to intimacy. It's part of your identity. The more you understand your identity, people, you have the authority. It is commensurate with your understanding of your identity. Number five, when we're doing our relationship with him well, now listen, when we are doing our relationship with him well, the confirmation will be adversity. Really, Paul was the most powerfully anointed, most authoritative figure in the early church. And he had the worst life. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. Don't worry about it. I'll be with you in it. But you will have trouble. But you will grow and you will become a better person. And you will end up liking yourself better after the trouble than before it. Because you will have grown into a person you can take joy in. So when Satan rises up to oppose you, understand that he's going to. It's his job. It's how he earns his living. Persecuted, not crushed. But not destroyed. Though the sorrow may pass through the night, the joy comes with the morning. When we're doing our relationship with him well, the confirmation will be adversity, especially from the world if it costs them financially, but also attack from dead religion. When you go after false gods in a society and you start speaking out against false gods in a society, you are speaking against economic entities. Did you know that? Most of the time they're, they're, they're caught up in some sort of gain and greed. 
When you start speaking on social injustice and you start speaking out as a Christian against things that are wrong, systemic evil in our, in our culture, believe me, you will provoke a counterattack because you're threatening them in their wallets. Number six, even those who know God well need to listen to their peers for advice. Paul is going to go out and address that crowd because he was full of anger. He's a fiery guy and he was ready to give him a piece of his mind and cooler heads prevailed. And his friend said, you are not, don't go out there under any circumstances. You need to just quietly leave. And he was the leader. He's like the premier guy. Remember the prophets, they said, well, you're going to see it later in Acts. Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, absolutely the worst things in the world are going to happen. They're going to hand you over to the Romans. It's going to be really bad. They could even kill you. And that was all prophetic words, accurate prophetic words. And Paul goes, no, I'm going. That was the right thing to do then. But this time he was, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to fight these guys and I don't care what's going to happen. I'm so mad at them. And, and they, his friends go, you're an idiot. And we want you around for a while. And we love you. So would you just leave? And he leaves. And it turns out fine. See, he's guided by the Spirit. He's, he's, he's guided by his relationship with God. There's no formula for what's the right thing to do, but he listens to his peers. One of the safety nets that God gives to those who move in intoxicating spiritual power are friends who will correct and speak the truth. The more you move in spiritual power, the more you need people to tell you you're just a regular guy and you're really not much different than you used to be. You're just operating in more power. You follow what I'm saying? Spiritual power is intoxicating. It's a drug. It's really fun. It's the Superman thing. We need someone to tell us, you're not as special as you think, pal. You're just one of us chickens. It's good to have people that tell you the truth, and we need to listen to them. Because usually, very often, they're speaking for God. Okay. We're done. Okay, let's just go through these. Just close your eyes for a second. I'm going to read them. And we're going to ask the Lord to tell us which one of these is my most important issue. Which is one that I need to apply in my life? Which is the one that will cause me to grow the most? Okay, number one. Holy Spirit, please speak to us uniquely, individual by individual. If this is their issue, please highlight it. I need to take more chances moving in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. I want to be a normal Christian, not an average Christian. Okay, if that's you and the Holy Spirit just highlighted that, accept it as true and ask him what he wants you to do and how he wants you to risk. Okay, number two, our spiritual power comes from a relationship of intimacy with the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. It's dependent upon our relationship with him. Is the Holy Spirit calling you to draw closer to him in intimacy? Have you been trying to do the Christian life 
in your own strength. Number three, are you certain that he is your good and loving father? Are you certain that you are his well-loved child? Because that's your identity. If not, what's he calling you to do? Number four, the more certain we are of our belonging to him, the more authority we carry. Are you certain of your belonging to him? Do you know you have authority? Number five, can you accept that the confirmation of doing the relationship with him well will be adversity. Can you accept that? Number six, do you have friends who will correct and speak truth to you? And are you willing to listen? If not, what does he want you to do about that? Okay, we're done.